Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and greetings. Welcome to American History Hit. I'm Don Wildman. Across the globe, people are all too familiar with the infamous events of September 11, 2001 when four coordinated plane hijackings struck the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan and the Pentagon in Arlington County, Virginia, Flight 93 also, in which passengers fought back against their hijackers and crashed in a Pennsylvania farm field, killing all on board. But for New Yorkers and everyone else in that city that day and all throughout the greater New York area, 9-11 began as, well, a Tuesday, a normal Tuesday, exceptional only for its gorgeous blue skies above. We all have our stories from that strange morning. Me, I was having a coffee in my car, reading the New York Times, having secured for my vehicle a plum parking space on 21st Street, two blocks from my Chelsea apartment. It's a New York ritual, the moving of the cars for street cleaning purposes. You park and you have to wait in your car, and finally you can leave. It's preposterous. But for all that whole hour... After the first attack, me and my fellow car parkers had all been sitting in our cars listening to the news on the radios. I had assumed that the first incident was some small private plane, not a jet, and certainly not a terrorist attack. But then came the second plane. My God, what? And now everyone was on the curb, checking in with each other, still concerned, absurdly, that if we left our cars, we might get ticketed. Everywhere there were sirens, the emergency vehicles racing downtown, Something major was now afoot. I rushed home, jumped on my bike, and rode four blocks to the Hudson to see what I could see. While I was cutting through traffic, I heard someone in a taxi cab shout that the other tower had just collapsed. And sure enough, when I arrived at the river, where once had stood the towers, there was nothing but a giant, sky-high, pale gray cloud over the entirety of Lower Manhattan. This swirling, dismal cloud. All I could do was stare up as stunned people moved north past me with plaster dust in their hair. Tuesday, September 11, 2001, had become an historic disaster with global repercussions. Thousands of innocent people were murdered that day. Thousands more had their lives altered forever. But 9-11 would also trigger, eventually, a colossal shift in the life of the city itself. New York would claw stubbornly back, of course, but it's a changed and somewhat humbled metropolis. Today, there is a brand new tower, the Freedom Tower it's called, standing near the site of those doomed structures. A moving memorial is dedicated to the victims, water descending poetically into the abyss. A fine museum tells the tale respectfully. 
But everything else, from complex infrastructure changes to lasting health effects, physical and mental, all of this would be part of the recovery that continues on so many levels to this day. It's been 22 years now, and on this anniversary, we're talking the remarkable history of what came after 9-11 in the company of Susan Apatow and Zachary Baron Shemtab, editors and contributors to the 2018 publication New York After 9-11, which covers the whole spectrum of the subject. Welcome, Susan. Welcome, Zachary. Thank you, Darren. Glad to be here. Let's talk about New York, one of my favorite subjects. To be clear, we're recording this interview several days before September 11th, 2023. But as certainly most New Yorkers can relate, every early September, we all go through this, this where were we that day. But all around the nation and the world, people feel this way, this tension rising up, reminding us of the experience and the loss. Much of the recovery from 9-11 has been of a psychological nature, true? Yes. True, but it's also parallel the physical reconstruction of the city. It's such a vast subject matter, which is what's so remarkable about your book. I, you go through the contents, and just to explain to folks, you guys edited this, you contributed it as well, but there's a whole slew of experts who are talking about every aspect. It's a remarkable uh, gamut of subject matter that has to be considered. What drew you to do this in the first place? After 9-11, I did a lit review to see what I could expect to happen in New York in the days, weeks, months, maybe even, I thought, years after. And I found very, very little. And so I decided on that day or, or the next day that I was going to follow the sequence of what happened after the event. And my most trusty source was the New York Times. And every day they were reporting in front page news what was going on. And so I just kept clipping articles. It was kind of the days before archives. Yeah, just so you know, I don't want, Susan would physically clip the articles. <laughs> it was not like she was going, you know, on the Times website or Googling. She physically took the scissors and put them in her yeah. office in a specific place. I respect that, Susan. I want to take a moment. I, this is such a difficult subject to manage as a conversation, truly. And I just want to own up to that fact. I was, as I explained in the earlier part, there that day. But what is as profound as that personal experience is the aftermath experience of living in Chelsea, which is where I was, and seeing the entirety of this process take place over the subsequent years, from the removal of the wreckage to all the horror of that and everything that went on, and then the smell, the clouds that would come over the neighborhood. I was on 23rd Street and 10th, and so as an eyewitness to that experience, it was a complex one to go through. You didn't know how active this whole site still was in terms of its effect on the city itself. I just want to relate the, you know, everybody went down there and tried to climb to the top of the barricade and look in, and there you would see, I mean, a Pearl Harbor of a scene, you know, just tangled steel everywhere. And how they would ever remove this, much less rebuild the city, was just an overwhelming thought. Yeah. It's an extraordinary thing to have borne witness to, either in person or not. And to sort of untangle all the subject matter is what we're talking about today. Where does it begin for you in terms of the, the recovery? It's, of course, incredibly difficult to say. I mean, obviously on the day itself, I was in New Jersey and you would go to a hill in my town and look across and see the smoke rising from the buildings and the boats going in and out. So concretely, in many ways, it began then for me. But one of the most remarkable things was how quickly 
the recovery got underway yeah. and was finished. So you had, of course, the people not only in New York or New York City, but from all over the United States coming in to help and going through the wreckage. And they were working 24-7. You know, the NYPD set up headquarters, but there were all these headquarters, temporary makeshift headquarters set up everywhere. Yeah. Everyone was chipping in. And they had actually finished the recovery, I believe, by March of the next year, which given the amount of wreckage and the horror is almost hard to comprehend. Sure. People would be shocked or heartened, perhaps, by the fact that New York is probably the most responsive place in the world, you know, in terms of emergencies, even from somebody tripping over a curb, you see it right away. But in terms of 9-11, I remember the signage. Everybody was asking for, you know, masks and anything for the first responders and all the pictures of the people missing and so forth. It was an extraordinary illustration of the spirit of the city, really. And that showed up, you know, through Rudy Giuliani and all the leadership, making sure that something was undertaken right away. That was an extraordinary factor of it all. And there was the sense that, oh, boy, we're going to take this in stride. But, you know... It's one thing to take the big problems in stride. It's another thing to take 9-11 in stride. So you never knew how this would really play out. I want to talk about the health effects, first of all. All those guys on that pile, that cloud that I was talking about, what were the worst case scenarios of all of that, and how has that affected people? You know, the people who worked on the pile were not wearing masks. There was really no health and safety precautions that were taken. And that's really unfortunate. When Oklahoma City happened, there was a rumor that there was radioactive material there or some toxic material. And so the whole area, a very large area, was cordoned off and nobody was allowed in. And that prevented this from happening in Oklahoma City. But at 9-11, people were just completely unprotected. Also, you know, people from all walks of life were there, including migrants who had just come to the U.S. And so just... Uh, the range of people, and then people volunteered to come from other cities throughout the country and the world. It was a tremendous outpouring. Nobody had lived through anything like this in New York City, certainly. And nobody, you know, quite knew what to do. So people proceeded as best they could. But precautions should have been, in, in hindsight, instituted immediately. We knew that this was pulverized building material mm -hmm. and that it would contain asbestos and I don't know how many hundreds of other toxic elements and that they were subject to fires and they were being fused and thrust into the air. And I was thinking about that time when I went down there with two friends from Boston. I really regret having done that. It just, it didn't feel safe to be there. It didn't feel safe to breathe. And yet it was mob. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people were inadvertently exposed to toxins that haven't done them any good. Yeah, it certainly smelled that way, yeah. And this was compounded by the EPA. Uh, the EPA at the time, you know, was essentially saying that the site was safe. And so folks who were relying on the government to let them know if they were in danger, you know, would have said, okay, well, you know, they haven't detected these chemicals or these things in the air. And so they kept working at it. It was only later that the EPA and a number of other organizations, the EPA obviously being the, the fulcrum there, admitted that it was problematic, that air. Mm. And it turns out, I, I think the estimate is around 400,000 people 
were exposed to that air, counting the rescuers, people in the community, and all those around it, including tens and thousands of children. And have surveys determined how many of those 400,000 suffered? Well, I have read articles that, for example, talk about, you know, PTSD studies of children at that time were done once but never repeated. Hmm. And so we, you know, the health registries were incredibly important. But in the middle of a disaster, you know, the challenges of creating a really effective and long-term plan for a health registry may be not the top priority. Yeah. And yet right now, it's what we really need. That's a really good question. Some of the cancers that are coming up, um, there's an article just this week in the Washington Post that some of the categories of illnesses that are considered 9-11 related don't cover some of those that women are experiencing. Mm. For example, reproductive cancers. Because it was pretty much, I think, designed at the point where most of the people who worked on the pile and who were rescuers were men. Mm -hmm. And so there were discrepancies. The youth who were in elementary school at that time are now adults in their late 30s. And so we don't know, you know, what's going to be with them. And when people said, why so long? Well, because of the children. Zachary, Susan, the death toll of the day, the tragic day, is over 2,900 people, I believe. Do we know the final death toll on all of uh, the impact this has had on people who worked on the site and so forth? By some, you know, analyses, more people have passed away as a result of the lingering health effects of 9-11 than on that terrible day itself. Susan and I have discussed this, and I, I, compared to the number of dead, there's never a proper way to do that. But it is very disturbing, the amount of folks and the, the lack of good data we still have on that. Yeah, I think we passed that in 2018. And that prompted Michael Arad to revise the design of the Memorial Plaza to include an area called the Glade, which opened, I think, a year or two ago to acknowledge the death since because there was no way that the people who lost people to illness were memorialized at the site. And so that is such an interesting spot because it was built exactly where the recovery ramp came out from the wreckage. And there are no names there because they said they would never have a complete list. So it's just a diagonal path with huge rocks that in some ways echo the mountains themselves. But it's a very, very moving spot. And it's, I've, when I was there, police departments were holding ceremonies there for people that need to be honored. Police departments from outside New York and outside the U.S. Yeah, it is one of the most amazing things. I live outside the city now up in Westchester. And to see the 9-11 memorials everywhere, you know, in the greater Newark region, firehouses and so forth, everybody who came running that day and who perished in the disaster. And the numbers are just going to keep going. Huh? Shocking. Yeah. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on not just the Tudors from History Hit, my guests and I run through the full gamut of human emotion and experience. From the heartbreak of the Virgin Queen, Elizabeth not being able to marry arguably the only man in the world she ever really wanted to marry, may have, for that reason, not married anyone else. To a prenatal battle of the sexes, a male and a female seed meet in the womb at conception, and whichever one is stronger determines the sex of the unborn child. From Lady Jane Grey facing her executioner. 
you can't help but feel just the utmost sympathy for this young girl. To why the Laughing Cavalier is, well, laughing. He strikes me as someone who goes off on a sort of swaggering booze up. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Who really oversaw, strategically speaking, who oversaw the recovery? What part of the government was most re responsible? There were so many stakeholders, and that was part of the problem. Uh, you had, of course, the state, which was led at the time by Governor Pataki. Mm -hmm. You had Mayor Giuliani, and then you had Mayor Bloomberg. You had, to a certain extent, the leaseholder of the World Trade Center, of the buildings, uh, Larry Silverstein. And Larry, he had actually signed the lease six weeks before 9-11. Wow. So he had just come into it. You had the Port Authority which of New York and New Jersey, which actually owned the site. You had the Lower Manhattan Development Corps, which was set up in 2001 to pick out, you know, how it would rebuild it and who would rebuild it. So you had all these competing stakeholders. And then, of course, you had the victim 9-11, you know, victims' families themselves and every New Yorker, if not every American, Sure. chipping in and saying what they should be built there. And there were very different visions. For instance, Giuliani came in very early and said it's sacred ground. Others said you can't build office space here. Right. Of course, that was not the interest of many of the other stakeholders in Lower Manhattan who said there should be some commercial space. Yeah. So the very beginning was, you know, I wouldn't think chaos might be too strong, but you had a whole lot of competing interests. And understandable. I mean, this is just an impossibly complex situation in a dense, dense part of New York City, which is dense anywhere. I just remember that feeling of like, no wonder it's difficult to figure this out. How do you do this? And these are New Yorkers, too. So on top yeah. of which, yes, argumentative. New Yorkers are famous for being they shoot from the hip. They say what they mean. But this was another matter altogether. You had so many vested interests involved. You had so much hurt. It was just a big wound on the city. And in some regards, it just needed to sit for a little bit. I remember that feeling, you know, sitting there reading the papers going, I don't know how this is going to work out. 
But life was undertook nonetheless, which is the other really interesting thing about being a New Yorker is you just kind of get on with it. Maybe that would happen anywhere. I'm not sure. But it's just on a scale of New York City, which is incredible. One of the big stories that came up, the, the Muslim mosque being built there. That was in 2010, right? Yes. I mean, the cultural impact of this was huge. Something that wouldn't even be discussed in a blink suddenly became headline news that there was a mosque going to be built there. How did that play out? Played out very sadly. The idea there was it was a developer and an imam, I believe. Um, They wanted to build something called Cordoba House, which was going to not, you know, just be this mosque. There's kind of this misperception that suddenly, you know, these groups came in and say, we want to build a mosque on ground zero. It was nothing like that. What it was is there was a space where they wanted a Cordoba house, which was essentially an area which would have a cultural center, be a community center. It's modeled on the Y. It was have the kind of facilities a Y would have, which is nothing like a religious institution. Oh, no, no. And so it wasn't this ground zero mosque, regardless, a number of, you know, which became powerful right-wing voices for the most part and capitalized on it, uh, including this character, Pamela Geller, and a number of others. And they turned it into the Ground Zero Mosque. It became very politically contentious, this idea of infiltration in the heart of Ground Zero. And you saw just this massive partisanship on both sides was in many ways a precursor to a lot of the type of partisanship we see today. It wasn't even at Grand Zero. It was a few blocks away. I think it was near a strip club. And the people who objected to it most lived thousands of miles from New York City. Because New York City, you know, two blocks is another neighborhood. And it's not encroaching. So what happened eventually? Did it not get built? So the opponents effectively won. The political pressure just became too much. And one of the parts of it was going to be for condominiums. And so the commercial aspect of it, the condominiums have actually been built. And there's going to be, or there are plans to be a separate space for a, you know, a cultural community center, I believe a Muslim cultural community center. But my understanding is that has not been built to this day. And instead, now you just have condominiums, which is profoundly different from the initial plan of Cordoba House. Wow, that's amazing. I really lost track of that whole story. Let's talk about the design of this whole place and the way that it was envisioned eventually. Today, I must say, if anyone hasn't, when you walk around this area, it's, to my eye and to my sensibilities, extremely well-managed and extremely well done. You may feel differently, but when I see those memorials, I am really moved. They are very, very poetically appropriate. The museum itself is extraordinary. People rave about it when they see it. You know, it gives me a a feeling of pride as a New Yorker to know that this was processed in such a healthy fashion in my mind. The Freedom Tower, I have different opinions of. I don't love it, but I do see its point. And I'm wondering how all that shook out. I mean, how long it took and what were the priorities and eventually how were the decisions made? The pools opened in September, 10 years after 9-11 in September. And then the museum, some years later, the building of, of everything at 9-11, as the architects in our book describe, was so contentious. There were many, many demands on space, and there were many, many priorities that all these groups had. 
Mm-hmm. And everybody was complaining, why is it taking so long? But I think that the time that it took, the length of time that it took was necessary. And it was designed to be multiply used by commuters walking through, by kids playing on the lawn. And mm-hmm. it really has succeeded. The opening up of Liberty Park just to the south with a great sphere of the caryatid above it is really a beautiful perch to look over the sea. But the whole space is used so, so thoughtfully, and it took time to do that. And it's interesting how, I think for the most part, the consensus is that the memorial was beautifully done and is shaped out better than many could have imagined. But your view of kind of Freedom Tower being less so is also somewhat popular. Can I ask you uh, why you feel that way? Uh, I grew up in Philadelphia, and Freedom Tower reminds me a lot of that. It's too shiny <laughs> for me. <laughs> it's, it's great. It has a sense of uh, of too much glitter going on. And I have to quickly add to that, that I completely agree with you, Susan, on the sophistication of the site. And the, the memorial, you know, I take that entire neighborhood as a memorial because it's the finest example of a city getting on with itself while also paying grown-up attention to something horrible that happened and letting that continue to live as a memory that needs to heal itself while humanity must go on. And I think that they struck it perfectly, as a matter of fact. It must have come from just an organic process because it just sort of looks that way. You know, people are going to work. People are in a rush. They don't have time to look at the pools. And yet there's all sorts of people there for exactly that purpose. And it's like this little microcosm of humanity, you know, of a city. And I think that's a beautiful thing. The Freedom Tower, maybe I'm influenced by the fact that it was proposed so triumphantly. It was supposed to be this big statement and stuff like that. And it's the only part of that whole redevelopment to me that still looks like it's trying too hard. That's how I feel. But maybe I remember the World Trade Centers as not trying too hard. They were just there, you know, like those big hulking things. I never liked those very much, I have to admit. But we liked them more and more. Yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Now it's a monument in our minds. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And of course, speaking to your point, Don, the Freedom Tower is 1776 feet, which also, you know, speaks to this idea of symbolism and triumph. And to be fair, it was always going to be a fortress, given its location. And we should forget that, right, the Twin Towers themselves were not very well liked, especially when they were built. They were considered, you know, this just testament to brutal economics. Absolutely, yeah. And it was only over time that people came to appreciate them more even before 9-11. Well, there was also a dueling of the architects who would get the commission to build that. Yeah, they ended up having an understated look, ironically. I mean, Daniel Liebskind, who was the architect, you know, had a very powerful backstory. Okay, he was the master plan designer. So he decided to make the tower 1776 feet so that it had a symbolic, height had a symbolic meaning. Obviously, it wasn't going to be the tallest thing in the world. And so then there were two architects and they were pitted against each other and it went on and on. And they each had their, you know, backers and it was in the front pages of the New York Times. But I think that the one that they chose was the glacier one, as you point out. It's just not as New York. Anyway, there were so many infrastructure changes that had to happen. I remember that being a real palpable part of this, that you couldn't take the subway down there, obviously, and all kinds of things took years and years to change. Were those made in an engineering sense to last? I mean, are we going to have to sort of 
take all this apart someday again? Who knows with climate change? I mean, it's built right on the Hudson, and some of the area is landfill. And Superstone Sandy basically flooded everything that was landfill. Sure. So it's a precarious site. I think we have to trust that the people who did the work knew what they were doing, but I don't feel thousand percent confident that we will never have issues there again, environmental or otherwise. I mean, the, you know, the attack on the World Trade Centers was the second attack, and it was so obvious when it happened that it just followed the first one, which didn't seem to have done the damage that it was intended. And not to mention that Lower Manhattan grew along tremendously with the rebuilding process. So... You know, in terms of whether it was built to last, I think the idea, at least Daniel Liebstein's idea, and I think Mayor Bloomberg's was that it would create a thriving community along with it. And to a certain extent, it has. Lower Manhattan itself has profoundly transformed since 9-11. Oh, absolutely. And it's like the rest of the city and the rest of America. It has gotten so priced out of belief that the whole city has really alienated a large part of its population as a result of this. And and that's certainly true down there. Yeah, it was a whole different kind of neighborhood in the old days, uh, all financial primarily and business oriented. And then suddenly people started to actually live down there. It started with Tribeca. I used to live down there in the in the 80s. And, you know, those were sort of no man's land in those days. And then suddenly they became uh, really rich people's lands. And that spread over to the financial district where no one would live in the old days. Yeah, Lower Manhattan now has twice as many residents as it did uh, around 9-11. The old school Wall Street culture, while still there, you know, now is complemented, I guess you could call it, by plenty of others such as tech, media, etc. You have a lot of restaurants and bars, a lot of younger people. It's much younger than it was before. And so it's a completely different neighborhood culturally and commercially than it was prior. And you can't separate so much of this stuff from, you know, the horrific health elements or the day itself. But it also has a prehistory. There was the Five Points neighborhood, which is immigrants. It was around where Chinatown was. That was displaced by federal, state, and local government offices. And it was the kind of place you rummaged through boxes to find electronic stuff to DIY projects. It was called Little Syria. At one point, which came right up to the edge of where the World Trade Center property line was, and that was destroyed to build the Brooklyn Battery Tunnels on-ramps. But the history of that area is very, very rich. But right now, it's never been built like this. And so there was land before, there were low buildings, and now it's a very different place. But I think it's a microcosm for how New York does things, where over time things just shift and change and displace communities. Sure. It's a statement on capitalism more than anything else. You know, exactly. you just move to the money and the money comes to you. And so that neighborhood became a very, very rich real estate potential as a result of the refashioning of it. I suppose that's what people were worried about when they said, no, no, sacred ground. They just knew, you know, instead instinctively that it would become, you know, a new community with lots of expensive housing in it. Speaking of community, were there any particular groups, uh, neighborhoods that really lost out in this era, this aftermath? Right after 9-11, it was certainly Chinatown, all the low-income neighborhoods right nearby. There's still concern about those neighborhoods, and of course, they themselves are being gentrified. So I would say that the incredible mix of 
people who live downtown who are not well-to-do. Some of them may have made out well, but I think that the communities themselves were somewhat neglected. Right. It's always a, a chain reaction in New York where one neighborhood goes one way. There's a suddenly Queens is blowing up because everybody who used to be living in downtown Manhattan isn't able to live there anymore. So you have that kind of changing dynamic going on. I want to return to uh, the conversation we were having about the, the Muslim community there. After 9-11, there was an extraordinary amount of surveillance on that community, right? The NYPD must have really borne down. Sure. You know, I'm a professor at CUNY, and CUNY students who were Muslim were surveilled. They were befriended by people who purportedly, you know, were in their community, but were actually undercover agents. The mosques were being surveilled, restaurants. And I believe the NYPD went out beyond, you know, Manhattan into New Jersey and the surrounds. They took it upon themselves to become a kind of an intelligence agency. They found nothing that could be brought to court in all that time. But what it did, and it was particularly terrible for the youth, was it created a tremendous distrust in the government. It's, I think, a terrible thing to learn that somebody you had befriended was an undercover agent. Sure, yeah. And it was a very, very aggressive move against a community for no apparent reason except for identity-based prejudice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there were, of course, rumors in that community that so-and-so was an informant. And just imagine the distrust that creates among each other. Yes, very divisive within their own communities. You wrote this book in 2018. I predict you're going to be rewriting it in 2028. I mean, there's so much here that's still to play out. The purpose of the book was to make it clear what happened to New York City in various spheres so that if anything like this happens elsewhere, that people will have a resource to read what happened in New York. It won't be the same as their experience, but at least they get a heads up. Yeah. And I think that we have provided the heads up for the first 18 years. And after that, the record gets very diffuse. In order to find what's happening now, you have to look everywhere. You have to look under rocks, practically, and you get conflicting material. I think that the best approach might be to follow one thread rather than to be so comprehensive. But it seemed important to have the everything at once philosophy because all that was happening at once, and oh, it yeah. was all in the news. And with that point, we turned to experts to describe the spheres we had found to be the most important in the news. And the long-term aftermath of disaster does bear study. I mean, the media cycle is that, you know, after a few weeks, things are off the first page and maybe out of the newspaper entirely. But in fact, it's the long-term effects that are so interesting psychologically, as you point out, but materially as well. And to trace it now probably would mean to trace it through a life. And as an individual, one person, that might be a very productive way. I would hope that somebody could continue to write about this topic of what happens after a disaster. And the 2028 edition would, of course, have COVID yes. and how that, while I, there were a lot of attempts to kind of compare the impact on New York City between COVID and 9-11, I don't, you know, I don't think that's quite right. But certainly you saw this whole idea of people are going to leave the city for good now, you know, they're going to get out of these buildings. And so tracing that when that did not end up being the case after 9-11, even though many would have sworn otherwise, seeing the impact of COVID and the analogies there, I think would also be important. 
And the bad air days we've had in the last year, I think, have been very reminiscent of 9-11 where you see people wearing masks. It is an amazing record of what went on at an amazing time in an amazing city. You know, my favorite place on planet Earth, but for reasons people often find surprising, that it's a place that processes humanity so aggressively, so regularly. (laughs) And that's the good and the bad of it. You know, it, it just happens. And New York gets on with it like a giant machine of human civilization. And so taking this in stride is in one hand, but on the other, really understanding how to memorialize it on the other. And it's it's an extraordinary statement on the city itself. Michael Arad said, his I think his teacher when he was an architect, said that this, a city is the largest human artifact. Yeah, it is one of the most amazing things. Thank you for joining us today. Susan Apatow and Zachary Chemtop, I really appreciate it. This was a refreshing conversation in the end about something that every year reminds us of a very depressing experience. So I encourage people to look up the book New York After 9-11 by these two fine folks. Thanks a lot. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of American History Hit. Each week we release new episodes, two new episodes dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of great content like mysterious missing colonies, to powerful political movements, to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great, but you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.